0: It took me a number of months given my my weight loss regimen to understand that the period of time in between meals was much more important than the period of time that I was eating. And I think that's a common fixation that people have is they focus on what they're eating, which is yes, exceptionally important, but they're focusing on consistently eating or grazing. And, And when I realized that wow, I was getting much better results when I would have these gaps between my meals, whether it was intermittent fasting or just very strict periods of not snacking.
1: Welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist at Cygnos. This is Season 1, Episode 5, our chat with the Thomas DeLauer, fitness and nutrition expert, YouTube star, and Cygnos advisor. On today's episode, we're going to talk with Thomas about his 100-pound weight loss journey, his experience using Cygnos, ways to lower your blood sugar naturally, and we're going to talk about a sugar substitute that can actually help you maintain glycemic control, even while you're eating fruit. I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Thomas, so let's get on with the show. really, really excited to have Thomas DeLauer as our guest today. For those of you who don't know Thomas, and I can't imagine there's many of you who don't know who he is, he's a nutrition and fitness entrepreneur and author, a leading thinker in keto, intermittent fasting, and inflammation. He has a massive YouTube following with, I just checked today, 2.67 million subscribers. I think part of his success is he has this innate skill in explaining complex fitness nutrition concepts in a way that we can all understand them. Really interesting is he went on his own weight loss journey, lost uh, 100 pounds going uh, from 280 pounds down to, using my math, about 180. And what we're most proud of here at Cygnos, Thomas is actually an advisor to our company. So welcome, Thomas. It's great to have you. Thanks, Bill. It's awesome to be here. I want to kick this off since a lot of our listeners are on their own weight loss journey. I'd love to hear more about your own going from 280 uh losing
0: 100 pounds yeah it was a it was quite quite the ride still is you know i mean when i've kept it off for about 10 years now it's still um you know i wish i could say it's it it does get easier but at the same time it's comes with its different set of challenges as you keep it off but um you know for me i was i was an athlete in high school college i was an all-state rugby player i was cross-country track i was kind of the you're not the typical jock, but kind of a weird jock and, you know, did the did kind of weird sports, but anyway, I was still athletic. And then I, uh, got into just the flash forward into the, the more corporate world. I was an executive recruiter and then a healthcare recruiter. Um, then I went into the private equity world within the healthcare sector. And with that, just a very stressful, stressful early career. And, continued to eat like I was training (laughs) and I wasn't really training. I was sitting at a desk and uh and that's the very, very abbreviated version, but you know, ballooned up to at my heaviest actually, about close to 290, 290 pounds at my heaviest. And I gained that weight very fast. And I gained it in a matter of two years, put on over a hundred pounds. And um yeah, so when I went through my own transformation, I wish I could say that there was this big like, aha moment where it just hit me like a lead balloon that I needed to lose weight. But it was pretty—it was pretty natural. I realized that you know I've been with my wife since high school, and my wife has been with me from being, you know, skinny to being overweight to where I am now. And you know, a lot of it was just I. I have to say, it was, it was having some empathy. All of a sudden, I woke up and I'm just like, I can't do this to my family. This is not. This is not okay. And I, it took me a while to realize that I had a weight problem. I didn't want to accept it. As a matter of fact, a lot of my initial weight gain came as a result of, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on some muscle and you know, kind of subscribing to the bodybuilding notion of just, just eat a bunch and eat a bunch of calories. Well, that works if you're actually working out. Um, but if you're not working out and you're eating like that, it doesn't really put on a lot of muscle. It just kind of makes you uh, gain a bunch of fat. And when I went through my transformation, there was just so many different aha moments I had along the way. But, you know, I predominantly used the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting and, you know, some methods in between kind of cycling in and out of keto. And through that process, I really just given the industry that I was in was able to, walk alongside some really leading physicians in that field and learned a lot more about intermittent fasting, learned a lot more about ketones and how that process works in the body and just developed a very strong just desire to learn and understand the biochemistry of what was going on. Um, Ended up leaving that career and starting a YouTube channel, which is pretty random. And it's, uh, here we are today. And that's a very abbreviated version, but
1: (laughs) yeah. So uh, one thing I'm really interested in, I was listening to, I think it was an interview that you had on another podcast or maybe it was one of your YouTube videos. So there, there's so much great content that you've produced out there, but you talked about asking the question when you're starting your weight loss journey, well, how did I get
0: here in the first place? Was that instrumental? Do you think in making that journey? That was everything. And it's still everything for me today. And as a matter of fact, my mantra, my motto for my brand is pursue results and reinforce the science. And what I mean by that is working backwards. And that that comes down to how you got there. Like you do have to work backwards from where you are right now today, what got you there and understand what got you there. And when you're looking at performance, it's the same thing. Okay. I had a great result. Okay. That worked. What worked? What was it that worked? Like, why did it work? And then you reinforce with different data points and understand, you know, in this case, continuous glucose monitoring, right? But also just various research, just why did my body respond the way it did? Oh, well, here's a theory. Here's a theory. Here's a theory. Okay, that could have worked. But when you get down to the brass tacks of why your body changes in a, in a negative fashion, I think understanding what got you there is the best way that you can unravel it. Because if you don't unravel it and you don't know how you got there, you're implying that it's a one size fits all approach for weight loss and that we all got there the same way and that we all have to undo it the same way. And that it's a simple calories in calories out equation and that's it. And all you have to do is stop eating as much. Well, no, you, maybe that's true at the big picture level, but we have to understand how did we get there? And I got there because I was fixated on all the wrong things. I, was scratching a dopamine itch that I needed uh, from all kinds of other things in my life, uh, from financial success to living the American dream, to everything that I was trying to satisfy this thing. And, uh, and when that wasn't able to be done, I leaned into food. <laughs> so, yes, it's very, very important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that you've kept this weight off for 10 years. How long did that um, that weight loss journey take you, though, going 280 losing 100 pounds. Yeah,
0: it took, you know, about a year and a half to really get to where I felt good to get to about, you know, 195 200ish pounds, you know, with some muscle on where I felt pretty good. And then another 6 months or so to kind of get on down to about 185ish where I kind of sit now. So, it's uh definitely was fast, but not so fast where it would have been easy to rebound.
1: Yeah, I, I get it. I, I You know, if I look at my own weight loss chart, and uh, I think like you, I'm a data guy. I have actually tracked my weight. I've weighed myself every day for the last 10 years. You look at my weight loss curve, it looks like a sine wave. Just like it goes up and down, up and down, up and down, until um, I joined Cygnos back in April, and then it just drops and it stays I had a lot of obstacles and maybe I should have been asking that question of how did I get here Uh, might have helped. But I was wondering what kind of obstacles you faced in that year and a half that you were trying to lose the weight.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was not tuning out the noise from other people. Um, I feel like, you know, when you are going through your own changes and your own transformation, it is a very unique scenario you know we are all very 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 unique in why we got there and then our just process not only from a uh, physical nature like how each of our bodies are different and are just so much variety there but just also the psychological components are just so varying and every time you let someone in and make a suggestion whether it's good bad or ugly it sort of disrupts what I call, uh, well, other people have called, but I, I guess I can kind of steal it. It's called, you know, error reps, right? These, these mistakes that we need to make on our own to teach ourselves. And when people are correcting you consistently along the way, whether it's accurate or not, it stops your learning process. And so the biggest mistake that I made was you know, taking advice from other people in droves where it was paralyzing me. It's okay to take advice but lean into a few people that you trust because i will say that getting one consistent message is much more important when it comes down to just staying motivated that's not to say that you shouldn't be taking in advice and information and utilizing it but when you are in a position like i was in i was very vulnerable i was very insecure and i would listen to whatever anybody would say and i would take it to heart to the point where it would paralyze me like oh my gosh bob says that you know, this keto thing is bad maybe I shouldn't do it. So, you know what? Yeah, you know maybe I'm going to pivot and I'm going to, you know, go plant-based for a little, you know, I just switched so much that I would paralyze myself and actually not get the results that I wanted. Uh, so I'd say that was the, probably the biggest hurdle, you know, and the other, you know, hurdles that you face, just, you, they're, they're all psychological. I mean, really, like I could tell you a bunch of physiological hurdles that I encounter, but they're all, they're all to be able to get past them if you just have the right mindset, um, not to say that people don't run into you know serious biochemical and physiological like hurdles, but most of the time, what we face is a psychological thing.
1: That that analysis paralysis you, you talked about is is real, and I can imagine for someone who's just starting now, it's even worse because everywhere you look on the internet. You know, be it a Google search or Instagram or even TikTok, there is so much information out there, a lot of it misleading. It's got to be tough. It's not just that you're taking advice or unsolicited advice from individuals, you're seeking some advice on how to lose weight. And there's just so much information out there. And I, if those of you are listening that haven't checked out Thomas's channel on YouTube, I really strongly recommend that you do because you've been sifting through all of this um, information that's out there and actually digesting some of the clinical trials, um, the evidence-based information about losing weight and explaining it in a really no-nonsense way. I think it's a, a great place to, to start. But what I want to ask you next is is now that you know what you do and it seems like you must be researching constantly if you were to go back uh, ten years ago and then well eleven and a half years to the beginning of when you tried to start losing that weight, is there anything that you've learned along the way in all this research that would have changed the way you you approach this um, this weight loss?
0: yeah, it's a very good question um, there's I mean a couple very tactical kind of things that I would have changed. I It took me a number of months given my, my weight loss regimen to understand that the period of time in between meals was much more important than the period of time that I was eating. And I think that's a common fixation that people have is they focus on what they're eating, which is, yes, exceptionally important, but they're focusing on consistently eating or grazing. And and when I realized that, wow, I was getting much better results when I would have these gaps between my meals, whether it was intermittent fasting or just very strict periods of not snacking, knowing what I now know, I, I can't imagine um, how much my struggle would have continued if I didn't pick that up. But now knowing the research even more that, you know, it's all insulin glucagon response you know and in between our meals when we're not eating when insulin levels get lower and glucagon levels come up glucagon is a is the opposite of insulin and it essentially is stimulating uh, lipolysis and stimulating fat loss to occur and if you don't give your body the opportunity to elevate that hormone you're never giving yourself the opportunity to actually use your stored tissue your stored fat and so now it's one of those things that's just kind of a you know a no-brainer for me but it's one of those things where when i talk to hundreds of thousands if not even millions of people online the comments the reactions are, are just in droves people just wow i never thought of it like that and so most people are still stuck in a mindset of you know how do, what do i eat how much of it do i eat and not really thinking about okay well let's pay more attention to when you are not eating and what you are not eating um and that paradigm shift i think would have probably allowed me to lose the weight a lot faster had i recognized it sooner
1: some of our listeners may not know that much about keto. At Cygnos, we're very much diet agnostic. We think you can use our data regardless of um, what type of of method you're trying to lose weight. But maybe just for our audience, maybe uh, a minute or two explaining uh, what keto is, and and after that, we'll we'll try and tackle intermittent fasting too. Before we get into some more glucose specific
0: questions. Yeah, no, I mean, so so keto is where you are essentially eliminating carbohydrates or restricting carbohydrates so that your body is, I guess, for lack of a better term, forced to utilize fats as a fuel source more. Now that sounds very aggressive and very intimidating when it's explained like that, but it's, uh, it's a very easy lifestyle. And that's why I chose it is because it was, it was easy for me to maintain. I didn't have to think much about it. Uh, for me, it was like, all I need to do is eliminate the carbohydrates and everything else is relative fair game granted you know you start going down my rabbit hole enough in terms of the content that i create and learn that not all fats are created equal and there's a lot of different you know pieces there but that's why i got into it and what ends up happening is as a result of your body utilizing these fats as a fuel source it stimulates all kinds of signals within the body that you know can promote longevity that you know may um you know, promote a lot of what's it. called histone deacetylase inhibition has some effect on uh, gene expression. So now there's a lot of really cool evidence that shows. I and mean, then you look, so you're basically, you don't have to limit calories to do keto, but it, you still need to restrict calories if you want to lose weight because there's still you know mathematical law of thermodynamics that applies. But um, the point is, is looking at a lot of the research from like Okinawans and everything like that 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 go through longer periods of fasting. Notice that wait a minute, when people are doing a ketogenic diet the signals that are being impressed upon their body are very similar to the signals that are impressed when people are uh, going through periods of fasting, which are very pro longevity, very um, powerful, positive signals. So then you know, I used it to lose weight. And then all of a sudden I'm like, you know, my cognitive function is unreal. I feel great. I want to keep this going. And then, you know, that was right at the cusp of when a lot of just the, the heavy hitting uh, research is coming out, and you know now just to, you know, to give context, I, you know, I work with the uh, U.S. Special Forces with their nutrition utilizing the ketogenic diet. I mean, I work with some pretty big entities that are utilizing it for cognitive function. So, um, and that's not just to sell the ketogenic diet. I, you know, it's I'm, I view things the exact same way as you guys over at Signos. Like, I weight loss is very bioindividual. You have to do what works for you. Period. Uh, it is my job to educate and. Get people excited and passionate about something that works for them. And for me, the ketogenic diet just jives with me so well. Um, so that's just it in a nutshell. I mean, you're higher fat, moderate amounts of protein. Uh, You still shouldn't be consuming ridiculous amount of saturated fat, despite what you might see online. I mean, it's 20% of the fats you consume should be saturated fat. The rest of them should be good quality fats. You still should be consuming the olive oil. You should still be consuming macadamia nuts and kind of the good fats. Um, You know, don't just be eating buckets of cheese and you know that's that's not the idea that's okay but that's not it shouldn't be the lion's share of what you're consuming just to put that out
1: (laughs) right right and the other thing that that we know you're an expert in is intermittent fasting and when you talk about it it sounds like a lot of what you've done has been more in like the time restricted feeding windows yeah um maybe explain a little bit about that uh how that has worked for you in conjunction with uh with keto
0: yeah so Intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding are kind of synonymous, but um, intermittent fasting is where you are taking your eating period and like when you would normally eat food and you are consolidating it into just a compressed period of time. So an example is I might go 16 hours without eating, but then I'm going to eat within an eight-hour period of time. Uh, So like in a 24-hour period of time, I I consume food through an eight-hour window. And what that does is that allows my insulin levels to get very stable because, again, how I mentioned, the magic kind of happens in between our meals, no matter what diet you're doing. And with intermittent fasting, you're basically giving yourself this very large gap where you have a number of different hormonal responses and a number of different what are called catecholamines and a number of different uh, signals that allow your body to accelerate fat utilization. And a lot of it is very simple. You're going through a period of time where you're not eating, so your body's going to have no choice but to start pulling from your fat tissue. Contrary to popular belief, uh, you don't just burn muscle during fasting. You don't just start wasting away. You don't go into quote unquote starvation mode where you store fat. You actually use fat quite well. Um, Because you're not going to store fat if you're not consuming fat. You're not going to magically develop a a pot belly during a period of fasting. But you absolutely can if you overeat during your eating window. So you're basically allocating a period of time for yourself to eat and a period of time where you don't eat. Very clear, it works with any kind of dietary pattern. Um, I've worked with uh, professionals that are vegans, vegetarians, paleo, Pescatarian, carnivore, keto—all of which can do intermittent fasting because intermittent fasting is just a timing system. And that's where I really have aligned with Cygnos Is we've done a lot of sort of self-experimentation on you know, glucose levels and what happens with fasting, and it's it's fascinating. Um, that's that's it in a nutshell. I think it's very doable, even more doable than keto, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've been doing it for a while now, and uh, you, you did mention something on a, um, a video you you put out. I think it was a while ago that i found interesting something that i haven't done which is i've i've kept to a time restricted feeding window that's been very exact and the same for uh, like a year or two years and I, I heard you made a suggestion you really should think about moving that around kind of uh give your body the opportunity to adapt to different schedules wonder if you could Maybe say a little bit yeah, about that.
0: Definitely, and I'm sure we have a number of listeners that are uh, have experimented with intermittent fasting too. Uh, so, yeah, with intermittent fasting, at first glance, you think, okay, it makes most sense to just skip breakfast. Um, you know, eat my lunch at twelve or one, and then eat dinner, and then do it again, which is great. That works. But I also encourage people to practice intermittent fasting through various times. Whereas, you know, maybe maybe one day you skip breakfast, but maybe another day you decide to skip dinner. Uh, And you're consolidating your eating periods into different times of the day. There's a number of reasons to do that. One of which is when you eat, it is an external stimulus to have a cascade of hormones and responses within the body, mainly showing that you're awake and that you're, you know, you're only eating food if you're awake, you're not eating when you're asleep. But if we're consolidating all of our food into the evening hours or the nighttime hours, then you can see how that might screw up our circadian rhythm where our body is getting all these environmental cues from outside that it's nighttime, right? It's dark. You should be going to bed, like all these different melatonin levels going up, um, you know, all this, but here you are eating all your calories in the evening time. Well, that is going to cause this disconnect where your body, as far as what you're consuming, it's going to say, Oh, this person's awake, but I have a mixed signal. So it can throw off all kinds of sleep patterns and everything, but also You know, by shifting your food intake to the morning and just doing something different, you have a whole different set of digestive enzymes that are pooled at that point. You have a whole different microbiome in the morning than you do in the evening. You have a whole different. uh, You also allow yourself the ability to burn off the food and the glucose that you consume in the morning. So, let's say you have two people, one person that's intermittent fasting, and this isn't to say one way is bad or good. I just think you should rotate them. But let's say you've got two people: person A fasts from. The time they eat their last meal they fast through the day they don't eat breakfast and then they eat lunch and they eat a good stack of their calories in the evening time okay then you have another person that is eating uh sort of the opposite of that they are fasted in the morning okay and they are eating in the afternoon right or i'm sorry so they're eating in the morning fast in the afternoon well the person that's eating in the morning they're going to have a bunch of fuel that their body has an opportunity to burn off and utilize during the day, glucose, whatever. Whereas the person that was eating in the evening time, they don't have as much of an opportunity to burn that glucose off. So if you were to, you know, throw a signos on them and, and have them monitor their glucose, you'd probably find that people that are consuming most of their calories in the afternoon have quite a bit more of a spike when they go to bed compared to people that, don't eat in the evening, but they eat in the morning. Because then the spike that they do have, they have somewhat of an ability to attenuate based upon their activity throughout the day. So I just encourage people, switch it up. You don't have to be set in one way. Play around with it, see what works for you, and always keep it moving so your body has the ability to develop new um, a new microbiome out of it, has the ability to develop new circadian cycles out of it. Um, it's it's an experiment and enjoy it.
1: Yeah, and Cygnus has been really valuable uh, as I've tried intermittent fasting i guess psychologically in the beginning i'm so attached to food i was worried uh, what's going to happen if i don't eat for this period of time am am i going to pass out and actually looking at my glucose levels it's fascinating that it doesn't uh your glucose doesn't start dropping and dropping and dropping and you become hypoglycemic until you eat in my case it just sort of levels out it might dip a little bit but then i can actually visualize uh, my body releasing some of the glycogen from glycogen stores back into my bloodstream yeah. to fuel me up and that I could probably go a long time without eating and that seeing that number gave me the comfort. Okay, this is like my body's fuel gauge. I'm doing okay. I am I can make it through this time restricted feeding window, I could probably even go longer and do some of these, um, these fasts that are, you know, three days on two days off. But it gives you that comfort of knowing uh, that your body is still getting fuel and has the ability to get fuel. It's not just through the food we eat, but right. all of the energy that we have stored in our body.
0: Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny how like when you look at the even the cellular signaling, like AMPK, and I'll speak a little bit, little bit complex for a second, just because it's fascinating. Uh, but it's you know AMPK, which is the signal that registers that we are. I guess, simply put, in a deficit, it recognizes AMPK elevates when it says, uh-oh, we don't have food coming in. We need to start liberating uh, you know, fat and glucose so that we can have fuel. Um, so AMPK elevates in a fasted state because it's signaling the body to release fuel source, right, um, so that our body does have fuel. Well, after you've been fasted for about 16 hours, AMPK goes down. Well, why does it go down? Well, it's because at that point, the cells are perfectly satiated, by the fuel that's been released by the body so much to the point that the body literally isn't sending a deficit slash hunger signal anymore Uh, and that just like demonstrates just perfectly that once we are using our own fuel as you know tissue and like fat as fuel our cells are satiated we have digestive hunger but we don't run into this like legitimate metabolic starvation per se
1: yeah, it, the human body's amazing. I, I don't know that we always give it as much credit as is due. It, it has this ability to, uh, to just keep in homeostasis, to like always adjust uh, to keep the body going, and uh, you can definitely see that in the data. So I was wondering when uh, when we signed John in as, as an advisor, you put on our uh, uh, CGM and, and uh, you opened up our app. What well, was wondering um, how. Looking at our data impacted your own understanding of your metabolism?
0: Uh, it's, it's been fascinating. It's, I mean, honestly, it's changed everything for me. Um, you know, it's all the way down to realizing that there's certain foods that don't affect my blood glucose that would affect other people's. And it's things that I normally thought uh, would absolutely just skyrocket my glucose, for example, like sweet potatoes. I have practically no. Spiking people are probably wondering, well, hey, a sweet potatoes keto. Well, the short answer is I cycle in and out of ketosis. Ketosis. So um, when I'm not in ketosis, I play around with all kinds of low glycemic carbohydrates, and like sweet potatoes, I actually get a drop <laughs> in my. And it's like it's really interesting. And the point in that is like, I may not know why, but we have a level of bio individuality. So that's been the first thing. It's, it's almost a big sigh of relief and sort of a peaceful feeling knowing that like you know there's foods that are are going to work for us and foods that aren't and I haven't eaten enough of a variety to really find the foods that might secretly be bad for me. I mean, I'm going to speak hypothetically, but one could find that maybe um, a perfectly healthy carbohydrate that you thought was really good for you isn't necessarily good for you. Maybe it does have a weird effect with you. But I think the bigger piece for me has been learning how I can, once again, you know, attenuate or sort of modulate this blue glucose response just by a little bit of activity. I mean, that has just been a game changer for me, not just for my own health and fitness, but for how I articulate it to my viewers, because I've realized for people that are really struggling, man, just a little bit of movement goes so far. It's unreal. Like, I mean, fat loss, yes, but I mean, I can, I can eat something and I'll get a little warning saying, hey, you know, you ate something, your blood glucose is spiking a little bit. You may want to consider going for a walk. I can go for a 10 minute walk and drop that sucker right back down into a healthy range, if not even lower. And it's just amazing. And it's really helped me with clients. It's helped me with, you know, being able to explain it in videos that, you know, really just understanding how important getting up and moving every like 60 minutes is just for 10, 5, 10 minutes. Uh, It's one of the biggest things that we can do to impact our health.
1: Yeah, it is. It's so amazing. I, uh, challenged our team to do a little experiment. It was, uh, I guess you'd probably consider it to be keto heresy, but I had them drink eight ounces of orange juice and record their spike. Some of us spiked to like 180, 200, um, milligrams per deciliter. So pretty high in terms of our glycemic response. Then the next day I had them do something to mitigate and almost everyone chose exercise as the way to mitigate. Um, First, I, I mistimed it. So I didn't realize when you have something like an orange juice, it's a uh, liquid sugar and it enters your system pretty quick. So I, I missed my spike, did it a second uh, day and actually had the orange juice and next to my treadmill, drank the orange juice, got on the treadmill, just started running. And it was amazing to see that I completely mitigated that spike. Um, I think The thing that was so powerful about that is realizing the control that you have as the individual over something that you may not have even paid attention to. But for our listeners who don't understand the mechanism, if you uh, have a big spike in glucose in your bloodstream, your body's got to do something with it. If it can, it'll put it into the glycemic stores in your liver and muscle. But if that's full, then it's going to go in adipose tissue or fat tissue. To realize that you can control that through movement, and it actually doesn't take that much for a lot of foods. You, you can just do a nice, brisk walk after eating something and totally mitigate the, the glucose spike, and as a result, the uh, amount of um, sugar that's stored as fat or increased fat. So yeah, that, that I think is uh, one of the most eye-opening things about um, about using Signos. And uh, also what you, you mentioned is just how individual and personalized responses are. Uh, there's uh, There's been some research out there uh, attributing most of it to uh, microbiome and genetics in terms of how we respond to foods. But what's really fascinating is that we don't all respond to carbs the same way. Yeah. I have a similar uh, experience with white rice. We did another challenge. I've been avoiding white rice since the day I put on Cygnos, assuming that I had to get a massive spike from it. Ate a cup of um, white basmati rice and no response whatsoever. So now going through, I'm going through testing all these different carbs. I'm finding there's things that work for me, things that don't. Uh, I don't know if this is um, this is cool on the keto diet, but I've almost found like a hybrid keto where I can understand which carbs don't spike me and put those in my diet. I don't know if I can still get into ketosis if I'm eating uh, white rice all the time, but not seeing a glycemic spike, maybe, maybe not. But I'm curious from your viewpoint, what are some of the best practices for those members of of ours on Cygnos that are on a keto diet? How would you suggest they use Cygnos to, to... Optimize being on keto.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, just as you mentioned first, not, not necessarily on the carb piece, but uh, which foods affect you, namely uh, artificial sweeteners and things like that, because that is a very nebulous, like inconclusive world. <laughs> where does this Splenda packet affect my blood sugar? Does this Diet Coke affect my blood sugar? Or will it kick me out of ketosis? And sure, you can measure your ketone levels, but I will say through and through that I feel like measuring your glucose continuously. Uh, is going to be more, you know, far superior. But the ketones are going to give you kind of a reading of what's called your glucose ketone index. So if you're looking at your glucose levels and also looking at your ketones, you can kind of see that ratio. That's a little bit more complex. So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, point is, is how do you respond to like a diet coke? Because that's something where I can have uh, sucralose without an effect, but the diet coke, I get a. Pretty aggressive drop. Now, what that tells me is not a good thing. <laughs> it tells me that I'm getting what's called the cephalic insulin response, where my body is having a, a, a spike in insulin that is actually dropping my blood sugar. So, with ketosis, it's not necessarily about your blood glucose levels; it's about your insulin levels. Uh, so, we look at—I mean, glucose matters, matters—but your insulin, insulin stops ketogenesis. So, if you have an insulin spike. Whether there's a blood sugar spike with it or not, you know that you are probably limiting ketogenesis and stopping the formation of ketones. So when I see that aggressive drop, I know, okay, well, I definitely just had a big insulin spike because the reason my blood sugar is spiking is because insulin or my blood sugar is dropping is because insulin was released, allowing glucose into the cell, dropping it in the interstitial and in the blood space. So then I have this big drop. Well, that's telling me, without having to go and instantly get a you know insulin test, that my insulin levels are um, are high. Therefore, stopping ketosis. So, look at those kinds of things. But also, as far as blood sugar spikes, right? Because if you are going to, if you are not diabetic, if you have a blood sugar spike, you can count on having an insulin spike along with it. If you're having a healthy response and you're not super insulin resistant. So, those two things. If you see certain foods give you an aggressive aggressive drop or give you a pretty significant spike, you know, these might be things I need to limit on a ketogenic diet because when the keto diet, you really should be maintaining pretty even all the time. Uh, And the only thing that's going to be an exception to that is when you wake up in the morning, a lot of times you'll have a spike. Um, It's just called the dawn phenomenon. It's pretty, pretty normal. And then uh, your workouts, it's going to cause a big fluctuation there, even more so than someone that's not on keto simply because you have, um, you still have glucose available, so your body is generally going to have to utilize ketones first because that's your preferential fuel source at that point in time, which is going to actually allow more glycogen to be or liver glycogen to be released, causing your blood sugar to spike. So when you're doing a workout, you can see a blood sugar spike. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't work out, but it's something to kind of look at. Um, and you typically want to wait for that blood sugar spike to come back down before having your post-workout meal on ketosis, in ketosis, because that's allowing you to assimilate more of that and not sort of piling on top of an already sort of overloaded system, if you want to call it that. Uh, and I think more of a basic thing, just for that everyone that's doing keto can really kind of look at, is, you know, look at what kind of proteins affect you in a positive way. Uh, you know, if you're having a whey protein shake, you might see... Well, protein still has an effect on insulin and blood sugar. It absolutely does. Granted, there's an insulin-glucagon ratio to factor in, which is, again, another complex rabbit hole. But you might find that you get a pretty significant spike with ground beef, but maybe you don't get a significant spike with fish or chicken. So I encourage you to just find the foods that allow you to stay as even as possible. That's not to say that having these spikes and drops aren't good, because they can absolutely be manipulated to work to your favor. But that takes a lot of experience and takes really knowing your body so i don't encourage people jump right into that i think the simplest advice is you want to do what you can to keep that signals that line just as even and straight as you possibly can with the exception of your workouts which is inevitable you're gonna go up and down
1: yeah absolutely you mentioned uh earlier the cephalic insulin response and and for those of our members not familiar with it, cephalic meaning head I actually came across this fascinating study. I I don't know if you saw this one. It was a very small study, but it it, uh, amounted to an individual uh, putting subjects um, through the experience of walking past a Cinnabon in a mall (laughs) and measuring their, um, their... glucose response. And if seeing a drop, the assumption was there is insulin released. And it's simply the head thinking, wow, that is some tasty food I'm walking past. I better start releasing insulin in expectation that I'm going to eat that. I actually tried to test this myself at a salt and straw uh, Mm -hmm. right here in in LA and just stood outside the window and smelled those waffle cones cooking. And I actually did see a drop in my glucose. So um, that's anecdotal, but uh, I think the other message that you you um, you're sharing with us, and I really believe this, is that if you go through and just experiment with these things and try things like you know the ground beef versus a, another type of lean protein, and see what affects your glucose, what doesn't, you can make those small little changes over time. That's really going to yeah. make the difference.
0: No, totally. It's it's fascinating. I mean, at the very least, it's just it adds excitement back into your, your regimen. I mean, it's just, it's, I love it just because it's, I don't know. I actually look forward to getting up in the morning and checking where I'm at and watching what happened overnight. And it's just, it tells a story that you may not be aware of that may have not been illuminated uh, until now.
1: Right, it's exciting because of that because it's it's like a, you're on a treasure hunt for things <laughs> that you can do and eat that are can actually be beneficial to your journey. Uh, but I also, like I mentioned before, I think it's about having that control and realizing that you have that control is so empowering. When a lot of people uh, that are just trying to lose weight without any guidance, I think sometimes feel like things are out of their control. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. I one of my favorite videos you did. Um, I've, I've watched a lot of them. Uh, You did one on dropping your blood sugar naturally. I just wanted to talk about that because I think this is going to be of a lot of interest to our listeners and and what things they can eat uh, or things that they can do in changing up food order that might drop their glucose. One you mentioned was fenugreek, which I got so excited about. Uh, You mentioned it as a supplement. Uh, my wife is half Persian mm-hmm. and fenugreek is huge in the Persian culture. So I make this dish called korma sabzi, which is parsley and cilantro. It's got kidney beans, but you can sub out some lean protein and then a ton of fresh fenugreek cooked in it. I haven't really tried to measure the effect that would have on my glucose level. I wonder if you... Had any insight as to whether or not it's the seeds, the supplement, or even fresh fresh fenugreek would be a good thing to to try for dropping your glucose?
0: Yeah, all of the above. Um, there's even some studies that the even the seed extract can have a powerful effect, uh, even in supplement form. But it's the galactomanin fiber that's in fenugreek. It's a very unique kind of fiber that is only in a small handful of, of botanicals and different you know things in the world. So this galactomanin fiber is an extreme soluble fiber. So think, um, you know how if you take chia seeds and you add some water to them, it turns into like a, you know, this gelatinous kind of like pudding, uh, no. you know, think that on steroids, you know, times five or 10, it's, it's, it's a very powerful. So not only does it slow the absorption of the carbohydrates, but, uh, the short chain fatty acid effect that it has from the microbiome, just by producing, you know, acetate butyrate, propionate down in the, the the gut and the distal colon, you end up having a pretty powerful microbiome effect that can affect glucose tolerance. So, uh, fenugreek is, I would consider it a superfood. I really think it's a very powerful thing. And I encourage a lot of people that are fasting before they start their fast to eat a dish that has a bunch of fenugreek or add some fenugreek to it because it can satiate you for so long. So there's like a triple, triple whammy microbiome fiber effect and a huge satiation effect that keeps you from eating that can definitely modulate your blood glucose.
1: Yeah, in addition to that, I think fenugreek also has like a sweet flavor to it. A lot of people yeah. describe it as being cilantro mixed with maybe like a maple syrup. Yep. Maybe that doesn't sound so appetizing, but it does it does satisfy a little bit of um craving for sweetness. And for uh listeners who want to get some fresh fenugreek, uh you may not find it in your grocery store, but if you do have any specialty markets in your area, Middle Eastern markets, they definitely have fenugreek, fresh uh fenugreek that you can you can buy. One of the other things that you mentioned in that video was was food order. So, I wondered if we just spend a minute on this and talk about how food order can actually affect your blood
0: sugar. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, just uh, simply having something in your stomach already when before you consume a bunch of carbohydrates uh, has a huge effect in and of itself. Um, you know, eating fats first. Um, you know, if you eat carbohydrates first and then eat some fats, I mean, sure, that can definitely affect the response in a positive way because there's still, you're not going to instantly absorb um, all the carbohydrates from your your bowl of rice. Like, you know, so if you eat the fats after that, you're still going to have a positive effect, but eating things, fats and proteins first can definitely have an effect because then most of your enzyme potential has been kind of used up on those foods. And then it takes a lot longer to process the carbohydrates. Um, But one of the things that I still want to caution people on is that having low glycemic or slow digesting carbs all the time, uh, and you may have seen this in your own data, is that, yes, you have a gentle bell curve with with your glucose spike, but if you consistently let's say hypothetically you're eating like two meal every two or three hours you're eating really frequently um, and you're eating low glycemic carbs well if it takes you an hour to kind of see this blood sugar spike and your insulin response still isn't fast enough to kind of match it you can sometimes have you know bell curve on top of bell curve on top of bell curve and end up with sort of this if you want to call it almost like glycemic load effect over the course of the day causing your blood sugar to be higher. So sometimes having you know a faster absorbing carbohydrate, like typically rice does absorb fast, uh, is not always a bad thing, as long as you can understand what's happening, that you're gonna have a rise and a fall. Um, and if you can kind of balance it with some exercise or balance it with um, you know having a little bit of fats later on, so it kind of slows it down after it starts to come down and you're not gonna get this big crash, So the point is like food order, food timing, um, a lot of it is going to be altered based upon, you know, your own data, your own experiences. But like after a workout you have a significantly better ability to utilize carbohydrates without them spiking your blood glucose because you're highly insulin sensitive after a workout whether it's resistance training or cardio more so with resistance training because you're uh, going to be much more in glycogen resynthesis and synthesis mode but that means that after your workout if you consolidate more of your carbohydrates for the course of the day around that period but also in the morning in general when you're more insulin sensitive it's going to be better off for you. You're going to be better off. Um, You know, we sort of lose glucose tolerance as the day goes on. And I would encourage people to eat most of their, quite candidly, eat most of your calories in the morning. (laughs) and taper off as you go. I usually say like, do 40% in the morning of your calories, 40% with lunch, and then 20% with dinner, because your ability to tolerate glucose and calories kind of goes down as the day goes on. Um, So that food order, that food timing, those kind of hacks with when you play with the timing can make such a difference. But again, you use your own data uh, and kind of find what works for you. You might find that Man, I just spike like crazy in the morning. I mean, that could very well be the case, but I can eat a bunch with lunch, but I can't eat much with dinner. Well, then you kind of know and you kind of lean into that.
1: Yeah, and the way to do that experiment, and I'm glad you mentioned that because there is something to circadian rhythm and how your body's able to metabolize carbs and and the uh, effect of um, those carbs on your blood sugar. There's been a number of studies that have shown that in the morning, you're much uh, you have a much greater ability to metabolize uh, those things than you are later in the day. A way to experiment th- with this is fasted first thing in the morning, have something measured out. Like you know, for me, it was the white rice. I did a cup. Do that exact same food later in the day after your, your um, glucose levels have already stabilized and see the difference. For me, uh, didn't see that in the rice, but oatmeal, I just happened to have an oatmeal late in the day versus first thing in the morning, and it was almost double the glycemic response, Hmm. which was uh, something that I never would have thought, but looking at the research, there is... There is actually a lot of research backing up that there's some circadian rhythm. I think maybe it's to what you mentioned much earlier, which is there's a different difference in our microbiome yeah. uh, from morning to night. It could be just that part. Even those those little um, those little bacterium in our microbiome have a circadian rhythm, Yes. and they change over time do, and yeah. can cause that difference from time of day. But again, it's all about. Uh, experimenting and finding out how your body reacts, and, and that's what's so powerful. Yeah, agreed. One more thing I want to talk about, and this has been an obsession of mine lately, which is allulose. <laughs> um, yeah. Just to let you know how much Thomas is out there, I googled uh, allulose and blood sugar, and your video came up, I think top number one video in that search result. And I watched um, you put, a, uh, I think it's two tablespoons of allulose on top of pineapple. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I've got to try that. Can you just maybe, um, for those of people, people not familiar with that sugar um, substitute of allulose, maybe just talk a little bit about it and about that experiment you did and, and why it actually not only blunted a glucose spike, but uh, caused your, um, your glucose to go down?
0: Yeah. So allulose, allulose is wild. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff coming out with it, but allulose is, uh, we'll call it, you know, an alternative sweetener. It is a natural sweetener in the sense that it, you know, it is derived from fructose. Um, but a lot of times there, you know, they are full disclaimer, you're making a lot of allulose in a lab, which I don't think is a big deal. Like it's, a, you know, people have what they have to say about it. And they'll derive it. They'll derive it from high fructose corn syrup, which makes it sound like it's terrible. But what it is, is a, uh, a natural alternative sweetener that is about 70% as sweet as sugar. So you can still use it almost one for one in baking. You might have to add a little bit extra. Uh, And that's not the cool part. I mean, yes, it tastes good. It doesn't have a bitter aftertaste like even stevia or some monk fruit or some of these you know, um, aspartame and sucralose and things like that. So that's cool. But what's really interesting about it is it utilizes the same receptor as glucose and fructose so it uses glute 2 and glute 5 transporters so that means that when you consume allulose it blocks the receptor that would normally or the transporter that would normally transport glucose this is fascinating because that means when allulose is consumed in adjunct to or cons- alongside sugar the allulose will commandeer the transporter so the sugar doesn't absorb as much uh, there are a number of clinicals that have demonstrated not only this, but also just like people can have a blood sugar modulation effect. Like if they take allulose without having uh, sugar, it can actually sort of affect their blood glucose. Uh, it's so wild. And there's, yeah, there are a lot of research on it. I don't know, even in the show notes, you might be able to link to some of my videos on it. It's I'm fascinated by allulose um, because I think it's a really interesting tool, whereas you're not getting a cephalic insulin response with it. And it's not a sugar alcohol. So you're not getting digestive discomfort. Uh, 97% I, I may be speaking out of the side of my mouth. So please don't quote me on this. Exactly. It's definitely in the nineties. Uh, like something like 96, or 97% of it is just excreted through the urine. Like the body just, just to a point where it says like, well, we, we don't even absorb this. So you're getting a sweet taste without actually absorbing it. Whereas with something like Splenda or something, I actually carefully use brand names, but let's just say sucralose or aspartame, um, you know, you could potentially be getting a toxic effect, right? Because you're absorbing this and you're actually assimilating it. And with aspartame, I get concerned with like phenylalanine because phenylalanine concentrations in the brain can go up significantly and that can kind of disrupt the uptake of other amino acids and thereby affect neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, make you kind of, you know, feel not so good. Allulose doesn't have that effect. And you may be thinking, well, okay, well, Thomas just has an allulose product and he's trying to push it. I don't. I like I'm just fascinated by this stuff and if you consume it with fruit it's uh, it's occupying that fructose receptor so i have been telling people in the ketogenic community like you're doing keto and you want to have some fruit you don't go overboard but if you wanted to have a you know a cup of berries or something if you put some allulose on it or a little bit of heavy cream that you've turned into a whipped cream using allulose as a sweetener you can definitely mitigate some of the absorption of that fructose and it's uh it's just pretty wicked cool so <laughs> i'm all yeah, about this yeah
1: It's my new favorite sweetener. The the only thing I would caution users uh, to is that if you cook with it, it does brown. So um, if you make something and substitute uh, allulus for sugar, expect that there's going to be some browning if you're trying to make like a white cake or something. very Um, And it's, yeah, yeah, as you mentioned, 70% as sweet as sugar. So you'd have to add a little bit more than you would sugar to a recipe. But it is, um, it tastes to me identical to, to sugar. Yeah, I like table that. sugar.
0: I like it and if you need to, you know, if you need to balance it out, you can always add a, you know, a smidge of, of monk fruit extracts to it as well, you know, just because monk fruit is about it's like 600 times as sweet as sugar. So it's like monk fruit. So if you add just a pinch of monk fruit, which is expensive stuff, but if you you need a tiny amount, and you add that to your uh, you know, if you need to exactly 1 cup for 1 cup of sugar to allulose, you know, you could literally put a cup of allulose and then a pinch of monk fruit and you would probably do just as sweet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Careful when you buy the monk fruit, though. I just bought a packet and didn't realize that it was mixed or cut with maltodextrin. Yeah, which uh, a lot of companies are doing now just to um, make things sweeter. But there's there actually is a lot of uh, a
0: lot of carbs in maltodextrin. Yes, it adds up. And a lot of times, if you're not careful, when you look at the packets, you'll see maltodextrin will oftentimes be the first ingredient, not the second.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly the case in in the one I just bought. Yeah, uh, which is going back. <laughs> Thomas, uh, I'd love to close these interviews with just asking, now that you've worn uh, Cygnos for a while, what's the biggest surprise that you've had having Cygnos on?
0: Um, I would say the biggest surprise is that I have uh, somewhat of an unusual spike that occurs at night, uh, right when I go to bed. And I don't eat after like 6 p.m., so I couldn't really make any sense of it. Uh, So I... Inquired with some of you know the minds that I know over at like uh, Oxford, which you know they do a lot of ketone research, and they you know some of my friends over there are the like, pretty pretty straightforward the answer. Now it makes sense, and that's that I am so uh, fat adapted from being doing keto, my body's so efficient at using fats that unless I am asking my body to use glucose at the musculoskeletal level, um, my glucose levels might temporarily spike when I become sedentary, and I. I move around all day. Like I'm on a stand-up desk. I, I try to make it part of my life. You just constantly move, and I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And if you got kids, you know that. Yeah, I'm moving a lot. So then, the moment that I actually sit down and lay down, there's no more muscular demand, and I'm a pretty heavily muscled guy. So there's a pretty good muscular demand for glucose. So the moment that I'm sedentary, all of a sudden my body has to like recalibrate, and it's saying, "Oh, well." These muscles aren't moving anymore. Wait a minute, what's going on? So blood sugar spikes for a little bit, and I don't mean a crazy spike. I might go up to like 105, you know, and then, but with no food, which is odd. And then it comes down about a half an hour later, and that's that's a very logical response. It's like my GLUT4 transporters are no longer translocated; they've come back down into the the cell, and uh, my glucose just temporarily rises until it balances again.
1: That is fascinating. I haven't heard that one, but it makes complete sense that, yeah, it's just a matter of your body and transition yeah. as it figures out what to do. So, Thomas, where can our listeners find you if they're looking for you? It's more like, how do they avoid me?
0: Um, <laughs> 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 if they, if they uh, want to go to... If, just, easiest spot, Uh But more importantly, I think you're going to get more value out of just going to YouTube and typing in my name. What I always suggest people do is type in Thomas DeLauer followed by whatever it is you're interested in learning about because I have like 1,500 plus videos on my channel. So it's like if you want to so send Thomas DeLauer blood sugar, or Thomas DeLauer starting keto, or Thomas DeLauer beginner intermittent fasting, like type my name with whatever keyword after it so that you can find a relevant video. Um, I usually recommend people do that so they get to the right place.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm going to go get a big bowl of fruit with allulose. Uh, Thomas, I've only scratched the surface of all the questions I want to ask you, so hopefully you will will join us again. But thank you so much for being on Body Signals. No, thank you guys. Thank you for joining us today on Body Signals. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at SignosHealth, And if you're interested in becoming a Cygnos member, go to Cygnos.com on the web to request early access. Until next time.